This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 3rd, 2015. I'm Sarah Crusty. In this week's show, Sylvie Budino talks with Suzanne Bard about the biosynthesis of the compounds responsible for the smell of roses. And David Grimm is here with some of our latest online news stories. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on how to sound like a human. People are not metronomes. Some of us can keep a beat, but there are always slight variations from perfect timing. That's one of the reasons computer-made music doesn't sound quite right to the human ear. Now researchers are looking into these subtle variations and finding fractals. So Dave, what are fractals? Well, Sarah, a fractal is a pattern that looks what people call self-similar. So for example, a coastline may look just as jagged on the scale of 10 kilometers as it does on the scale of 1,000 kilometers. And that's something that people have shown with mathematics. And fractals occur in a lot of places, other places in nature, and also in music. And where do the researchers in this study look for fractals inside of music? <laughs> well, they looked at a particular musician, a particular drummer, in fact, named Jeff Beccaro, who is probably one of the most famous musicians you've never heard of. He drummed for a lot of bands, including Toto, Pink Floyd, and Steely Dan. He died of a heart attack in 1992, but he's very revered for his drumming. And actually, one of the authors on this study was a big fan, so they decided to look at Picaro specifically. And they analyzed a very specific song to get at how his drumming technique may or may not have fractals inside of it. What song did they pick? They analyzed Michael McDonald's 1982 hit, I Keep Forgettin'. And if you forgettin' that song, we're going to play it right now. And they paid careful attention to the drumming in that song. What's so special about the drumming? Well, to the listener, the drumming sounds flawless, especially on the song that we just heard. But 
if you look at it closer, and that's what the researchers did in this paper, they found these fractal-like deviations in the drumming, things that only a computer would be able to pick up on. But it turns out it's these deviations that make the drumming sound more human. It's these minor inconsistencies that really separate what Porcaro did as prolific and as accomplished as he was from something that a machine would do. Where were the variations? Were they just in the rhythm of the drum beats? Well, they were in the volume as well, and the rhythm and the volume weren't linked, so there was two separate patterns going on. If we can't detect it, is it something that they can actually use to improve the way computers make music? Well, we may not be detecting it consciously, but perhaps we are subconsciously, and researchers say that maybe they could use this information to feed it into computer music to make that music sound a bit more human. Next up, we have a story on taking a long, slow look using muons. The Earth is constantly bombarded with particles from outer space, some of them a little bit more useful than others. Today, we're going to be talking about muons. So, Dave, where do they come from and what are they made of? (laughs) Well, muons are heavier, shorter-lived cousins of electrons. They usually form when cosmic rays, which are these high-energy subatomic particles that typically originate outside of our solar system, crash into the atmosphere. And this creates a cascade of lower energy particles, including muons. Now, what's really special about muons, in contrast to a lot of these other particles, is that they are heavy enough, they actually pass through a very large amount of Earth. They can penetrate actually hundreds of meters into rock and soil. And that characteristic is what interested the researchers here who were looking for a way of looking deep into things. What kind of things were they looking into? Well, man-made things, things that are buried deep within the Earth, pipes, underground facilities, things that would be hard to analyze just sort of by walking around. And the researchers figured out a way to use muons to look at them? Right. Basically what they did was they created a muon-specific version of a CT scan. Now, CT scans are when our bodies are exposed to things like x-rays, that helps form an image. Well, with muons, we're using the muons instead of x-rays, but the concept is similar. You basically have a detector that will create an image based on how a muon is passing through an object. In this study, they actually used the technology on a pipe to actually determine whether a valve in this pipe was open or closed. And you actually see an image of this on the site. You can see even with a sort of a fuzzy muon-created image that you were able to tell whether the pipe is open or closed, which might be really important and say, if you have a leak somewhere. And so this is a technology that can be used to look at things we really don't want to have to dig up to see if they're okay. That's right. Now, one disadvantage is that maybe where a CT scan may be able to be done in just a few minutes and you get a very high resolution, because muons strike the Earth so infrequently, it actually takes a long time to generate a really high-quality image. It could take hours or even days. Now, that's not necessarily a problem because you're talking about just keeping an eye on a structure to make sure it doesn't have any faults or other problems with it. That's something you might be able to do over a long period of time. But if you have to like rapidly analyze perhaps maybe an underground radioactivity leak or something like that, this still may not be the best technology. Lastly, we have a story on a bobcat burial. This story might actually have some clues into how animals were domesticated. Can you talk a little bit about the bobcat burial? 
Right. So this happened about 2,000 years ago in what is today Western Illinois. And the people that buried it were a group of Native Americans that belonged to something called the Hopewell culture. This was a culture that was very famous for creating these giant burial mounds. They would create these really big burial mounds and these villages would come together and they would bury their dead in these mounds. This is sort of a very considered a very sacred, special place that was sort of removed from the village itself. So what was really interesting about this new study is that archaeologists digging a few decades ago, actually in one of these mounds in western Illinois, found an animal buried there. And this was decades ago. Why did it take them so long to identify the animal? Well, the Hopewell had a lot of dogs, and they buried their dogs in their villages. So the dogs got buried in the villages. The humans got buried in these mounds. The researchers, when they found this animal, even though they had never seen a dog in these mounds before, just sort of assumed it was a dog. They put the bones in a box, labeled it puppy burial, and shelved it away in the archives of a museum. And then a researcher just happened upon them? Right. So there a researcher named Angela Perry, who had an interest in ancient dog burials, was working at this museum. She pulled out this box called Puppy Burial, really excited to study an ancient dog burial. And she realized right away that it was not a puppy, that it was, in fact, some sort of cat. What kind of cat was it? And what made it such a special find besides the fact that it was in amongst the humans? After uh, Perry analyzed the bones, she discovered that it was the bones of a bobcat, more specifically a bob kitten, probably somewhere just a few months old, which makes it really special for a couple reasons. First of all, again, this would be the only animal ever found in these mounds. Also, according to the authors, at least, there's actually no examples in the entire archaeological record of a wild cat being buried in the way this cat was buried. This cat was buried by itself. It was wearing a necklace or a collar that seemed to have marine shells and bear teeth pendants on it. It seemed to have been buried with a lot of ceremony. It was essentially buried just like a human being. And we don't have any other examples of a wildcat being buried like that in any other context. Now, this is so unique. Is it something that we can use to understand something about the relationship of humans and animals in the past? Well, the authors suggest that this may be us witnessing taming an action, that they think that maybe the villagers brought this bob kitten in from the wild, that they tried to feed it, that it somehow became like a pet or even a member of, of their society, which is why they buried it with the other human beings. And if so, that could shed a little bit light on how dogs and cats and other domesticated animals, all of which used to be wild animals, first came into our societies and first became tamed and then domesticated. So you're saying that taming came before domestication. So instead of dogs, you know, haunting our camps and eventually getting slightly and slightly more comfortable with people, that we would take an animal at a young age and indoctrinate it into our ways. Well, yeah, and that's very controversial, especially with dogs. Actually, a lot of people don't think that's what happened with dogs. They actually did domesticate themselves. And we didn't just grab a bunch of wolf puppies and bring them into our camps, although it's really hard to prove that one way or the other. But, you know, it's really rare to see an instance where you actually kind of see something like this taming in action. And that's what the researchers say they think they're seeing here. Are there any other possible explanations for how a tiny little kitty with a necklace ended up in this grave? (laughs) Well, um, one speculation is that there are actually some cultures right now in South America, hunter-gatherer cultures, that actually bring in animals from the wild and nurse them breastfeed them, even in some cases, small monkeys. And the idea is they're actually not bringing these animals in as pets, but they're actually bringing them in as a way to sort of thank nature. You know, you took care of us, you provided plentiful animals for hunting or plentiful crops, and we're going to take one of your animals and treat it very well. And so that may not have as much to do with pet keeping. And that could suggest that this bobcat wasn't really a pet, that maybe it had some other 
kind of significance. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a new study that sheds light on how memories form. Also, a study about how common drugs may influence altruism and selfishness. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about how politics shapes public perceptions of science. Also, a story about the fate of red wolves in the United States. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Roses are the most romantic of flowers, in Western culture anyway. But in this segment, we'll be taking all the romance out of roses and reducing them to their chemistry. Shakespeare might have you believe that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, but he meant this metaphorically. Turns out some rose cultivars have a strong scent and others barely smell at all. Sylvie Bodino and her colleagues identified the gene behind differences in scent production between various types of roses. I'm Suzanne Bard. Sylvie, why do flowers like roses produce scents? So uh, flowers produce scent basically to attract insects, and they need these insects for their reproduction, for their pollination, to transport the pollen, which is the male part of the flower, from one flower to another. And roses are pollinated by generalist insects. It can be bumblebees and bees. And these insects are highly attracted by the scent of the rose. And how do the scents of roses intended for distinct purposes differ from each other? So roses are used for the production of essential oils since antiquity. And the roses which are used for this purpose are almost always the same. And the rose which is the most used is called Rosa Damascena, and it's very fragrant. It is highly scented and it's a typical rose scent. And this Rosa Damascena also has other characteristics which makes it suitable for the production of the oil because not all roses can be used for this type of production of oil. For the ornamental roses that you can grow in your garden, they are sometimes scented, and thanks to the breeders' efforts, nowadays you may find roses which has, of course, rose scents, but you can also find a diversity of scents in these garden roses. For example, you can find roses that smell like tea or like various fruits, for example, peach, apricots, and raspberry, and even more weird fragrances like, for example, myrrh fragrance. So really, if you search, you can find a rose which has a scent that you like. On the contrary, the roses which are used for the cut flower market, the ones that you find in your flower shop, they are rarely fragrant. Although very recently, breeders have tried to introduce a scent in these cultivars, generally they're not fragrant. And these roses have bred for other traits, other qualities, for example, a long vase life, the shape of the flower, also the color, the resistance to pathogen. So for unknown reason, the breeding of these traits have uh, led to the loss of scent, and we don't know why, and this is what we would like to find. How interesting. And what are the chemical compounds that make up rose scents? And how do these compounds reach our noses? Well, there are, in fact, hundreds of volatile compounds in only one rose. 
So the scent is always a mix of the different compounds that are produced inside the petal cells, and then they evaporate, and eventually they will reach your nose. And in your nose, these volatile molecules will bind to different other receptors, and this binding will create the perception of different scents. Scent is something which is complex, and when you smell a rose, it can create many pictures in your imagination. For the typical rose scent, you have two major categories of compounds. You have the 2-phenyl ethanol, and the other very important compounds are monoterpenes. And in your paper, you looked at genetic differences between two closely related roses, and one of them has a strong scent and the other doesn't. What were these roses, and what did you discover about scent biosynthesis in them? Well, we were, of course, interested in knowing why some roses are scented and others are not. So we looked at the most important compounds, the monoterpenes, and these monoterpenes exist in other plants. For example, when you crush a mint leaf, there is an emission of monoterpene, and you smell these monoterpenes, although they are a bit different from the one which are emitted by your rose. And in these other plants, there have been many, many studies to analyze how these monoterpenes are produced, and they are produced by very special enzymes, which are called terpene synthases. So at first, we looked in rows at these terpene synthases, and what we discovered was that they were not doing much. So we took another approach, and we compared these, as you said, two roses, one highly fragrant and another one which is not. And we looked at all the genes that were functioning, that were expressed, we said, in the petals of these two roses. And we discovered one gene which was really very highly expressed in the fragrant cultivar and not at all expressed, not at all functioning in the one that was not producing these monoterpenes. And this gene was 7,000 times more expressed in the fragrant cultivar. And it turned out to be nudix hydrolase, not a terpene synthase, as we would have expected, and what is original in our finding is that these nudix hydrolase are known in many other organisms, for example, bacteria and also humans, but it had never been involved in the scent production. Interesting. So what happened to monoterpene biosynthesis of these scents when you knocked down nudix hydrolase expression in a heavily scented rose cultivar? Well, it was a bit surprising to find this uh, nudix hydrolase, so we had to prove the function of this gene, and we did this by knocking it down in a fragrant cultivar, and we did this by making transgenic rose with the help of our colleagues, and it turned out that the transgenic line we obtained was uh, much less fragrant and had much less monoterpenes. So it proved that our nudix was indeed involved in scent production. And you also hybridized roses with different scent profiles. Why did you do this, and what did you learn from it? Well, we took advantage of the fact that our colleagues had made a cross between two roses. One, its name is Old Dutch, is producing, is emitting the monoterpenes, and the other rose is not emitting these monoterpenes. 
and they have more than 100 individuals in the progeny. So what we did was we analyzed the scent in all these individuals, and we found that some of them were emitting and others were not emitting uh, these monotropins. And when we looked at the gene, the nudix hydrolase, we found that in the individuals that were emitting monotropins, they had a version of this gene that was functioning and that was expressed. And in the individuals that were not emitting monotropins, they had another version of the gene that was not functional, that was not expressed. So it proved again that our gene was really very important for the biosynthesis of these monoterpenes. So what are your overall conclusions about scent biosynthesis and the intensity of rose scents? We have shown that in rose, biosynthesis of monoterpenes is not made by terpene synthase, but it's made with other enzymes. And this is very interesting because it is the discovery of a new biosynthesis pathway in plants for the scent production. Of course, we still have many experiments to do. And we also now have two other questions. First, we would like to know if this pathway exists in other plants. For example, we are going to look at the close relative of rose, the strawberry, and we also hope that our discoveries will help breeders to combine scent with other traits in their cultivars. And of course, we would be very happy if our gene could be used as a marker of scent and help breeders. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Sylvie. Well, uh, thank you to you. Thank you for your interest. Sylvie Bodino and her colleagues write about the biosynthesis of scent compounds in this week's science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.